Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Well, Lord Jesus, our King, we see in that gospel reading your authority. And here I hold in my hands your gospel, your words. I pray that you would come and take authority over our hearts, that you would help me as I preach, and that you would give each one of us your peace. Come, Lord Jesus, for I pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So it's an interesting phenomenon that criminals who have gotten away or seemingly gotten away with the perfect crime often are caught later because they open their mouth. Now, sometimes this is boasting and bragging, but I think a lot of times this is due to the internal discord that such unresolved sin causes. I mean, consider Edgar Allan Poe's famous fictional tale, The Telltale Heart. And it's graphic and gory, and it's a short story, but it's about a perfect murder, and then the, the killer's own conscience becomes so unbearable that he just confesses right there to the police. Or, you know, there's lots of these things out there. I found it interesting, as someone who was in college in the, in the 90s, that more recently, um, the, uh, the L.A. gangster, Keith D., um, confessed about his involvement in the killing of the rapper uh, Tupac in 1996. And now he's been arrested in, in, on murder charges. I mean, that was a long time ago. I think that there's something about the internal discord that causes us to want to get it out, to, to come out into the light with it. And there are just, these are just a couple of quick examples. You can find lots of them. It's a natural human situation. Our conscience is telling us when we are not right, when we are not righteous, you might say. Have you ever experienced um, this internal discord? Not hopefully for murder or something big like that, but even on a small scale. You know, maybe you found something that didn't belong to you but that you wanted, and you played that little rhyme in your head, finders keepers, (laughs) but then you realized this isn't right, and you gave it back to the person, and when you did, you felt that inner resolution. Your peace returned to you. On several occasions in the last few years, I don't know if this is a test or what, but I've been given the wrong amount of cash change for a a financial transaction, and I'm ashamed to admit, immediately my heart goes, ooh, a windfall in my favor. That's 10 extra bucks. But I know how that goes, and by the time I'm back to my table or to the door, I'm like, nope. And I go back, and I say, hey, you made a mistake, I think, and give the money back, and, and then I feel the inner peace come back. I feel resolved about that. I know how that unresolved tension will just grind on my conscience. And of course, then I feel bad for the person whose cash register at the end of the night won't match up, and I think that person's probably going to lose that out of their pay, whatever it is. I'm bringing all this up um, because I want to talk to you about shalom, which is the Hebrew word translated as peace, but that's really not what it is. It's a peace that is a complete wholeness, is a, a wholeness of person and being. And um, this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, as Curtis mentioned. That's why we're in white. It's the last day of the Christian calendar, and it's the day when we recognize Jesus' preeminence in all things. He is ruler over all things. And as the earliest Christian creed said, Jesus is Lord. The Feast of Christ the King, it seems particularly pertinent in this season, I mean, we're watching two major wars on the nightly news and on our, on our phones, the feeds every day. We're heading into what will certainly be a contentious year of a presidential election. These big things are happening, and Jesus' lordship is needed now more than ever. 
or frankly, he's always needed. But um, Jesus said to expect these things, to not be surprised or alarmed when they happen, wars and rumors of wars. This stuff is going to come, and he knew it would come. He warned us ahead of, ahead of time of that. Now, as our preacher this morning, I'm far more interested locally. You know, think globally, act locally. I'm more interested in individual hearts rather than just the end of war. If hearts get resolved, wars go away. So the questions that I'm asking this morning are questions like, is Christ the king of my life? Christ the king. Is he my king? And if so, how? What does it look like that he is my king? Am I experiencing shalom, that wholeness, that peace, despite the instabilities that we experience in life? Where are you presently on the peace shalom scale from zero to 10? If you just took a little inventory. Now I've selected as our text today, Hebrews chapter seven. We just read part of it. It's a, it's a protracted argument. In fact, it starts basically back in chapter five. But I've, I've selected that because it's got this interesting and mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and we're in this sermon series briefly on images of the Messiah. We're looking at places in the Old Testament where um, some character or something happens that is directly fulfilled in Jesus and expanded way more in the New Testament. And Melchizedek is one of those figures. His name, Melchizedek, in Hebrew is literally, it means king of righteousness. And in Hebrews 7, verse 1, it says, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, but it comes from Shalom as well. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness and king of peace. That's what he, his name literally means that. And we're going to see here that the king of righteousness and the king of peace is Jesus, the one we need. Several scholars have pointed out, as I was studying this week, that that order of those nouns is important. It matters. Righteousness must come before peace, not in the other way around. In fact, Romans 5.1 says this, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And justified literally just means being declared righteous. So the righteousness comes before the peace. Since we've been declared righteous, since we have um, just justice, we have peace with God. So in a world that is marred by war and calamity and all kinds of other things, we're hearing a lot of cries for peace right now. But the question becomes, how can peace happen if there's no justice or righteousness? You're just not going to give up and stop and say, no, peace. There's a conflict. There is an unresolved tension happening globally. Now, Jesus is not only our great king, he's also our great high priest, the one that we need to find the righteousness with God that then leads to the peace that surpasses understanding. So I'm in, um, I'm in this text. It's on page 1004, Hebrews chapter 7 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. And in verse 17, which we didn't, we just read part of it, I mean, it's, it's a long chapter. In verse 17, we hear that the writer of Hebrews is teaching us that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's making a distinction here between the old covenant priesthood, which you could say was in the order of Aaron and the Levites, Aaron being Moses' brother, and the Levites being the tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, through whom what we'd say the Levitical priesthood would come. So you had to be a descendant of Levi to serve as a priest in the old covenant, in the temple. That was the one order, but we're learning that Jesus is of a different order here. You know, 
you have to be a descendant of Levi to serve as a priest, but Jesus is our great high priest, and he's in the order of Melchizedek. He was not descended through Levi. Does anyone know which tribe Jesus came from? Does anyone know which tribe the, the lion comes from? The, Judah, yeah, well done. We've heard it, the, the, the lion of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That Jesus came through a different one of those um, early 12 tribes. So the writer here in Hebrews is trying to help us see the difference and the superiority of Jesus to that other priesthood. He's our perfect high priest. The book of Hebrews takes us back to a scant few verses, literally only four verses in Genesis where Melchizedek appears. So it's Genesis 14, 18 to 21. That's it. And he just shows up out of nowhere. He does a couple things and disappears. And let me give you the context. So Abram, he's not even yet called Abraham. Abram, the patriarch, has gone off with 300 and something of his uh, household that are men trained to do battle to try to rescue his nephew Lot, who has been accidentally caught up in a local king raiding war where some kings from the north came down and they attacked Lot's town and captured him and his family and took them to the north. So Abram goes after them and the Lord gives him favor and he conquers and he comes back with his relatives and a large amount of spoil from that battle. And as he's coming back, this character Melchizedek just shows up out of nowhere and it says that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine and pronounces a blessing on Abram and then in parentheses, it says, for he was, God of most, uh, king, he was priest of God most high. And then Abram gives him a tithe, a tenth of everything. And that's it. And then, then he's gone. Like, there's no more Melchizedek. And um, the whole story, that's it. There's no mention of a genealogy of his parents. And Genesis is very concerned with genealogies and lineages. No, no story of his birth, nothing about his death. No beginning, no end. It's as if he's this mysterious figure pointing to something that's timeless. I do think he actually was a literal person. I do think he actually had a mother and father and was born and died. But the vagueness of it makes it open. In fact, some scholars speculate it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, but I think that's going too far from what the text says, that Jesus was somehow showing up here. And as liturgical, Eucharistic Anglicans, we can't help but notice when Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and pronounces a blessing and he's a priest, it looks a whole lot like the Last Supper and what we do in the Eucharist. But again, it doesn't say that and none of the New Testament people make that connection either. So we're stretching things there. There's no explicit meaning given. There's one other important place in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned and it's in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110 in verse four, um, it prom it's a promise to the Messiah it is God speaking to the Messiah who is, who is to come that he will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews finds this, this psalm so important, the writer quotes it three different times. It's shocking because God takes an oath. You know, raise your right hand and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We have to take oaths because our words are sometimes not trustworthy. We tell lies. But God is always true. Why would God take an oath? Psalm 110 verse four says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that Psalm 110 is all about Jesus, it's about the Messiah, it's about his lordship, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus quotes it in Matthew 22 when he's being questioned by the religious leaders. It's a messianic psalm, and the Lord is swearing, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I think, I mean, I'm guessing here, I think the reason it's put that way is because God wants us to pay special attention to this psalm. It's very important. It's about the truth of the Messiah's unique role. But before we can do that, I feel like we gotta back up a little. We have to zoom out further and ask, why does this matter? Like this Melchizedek stuff and Hebrews, and yeah, we know Jesus is better, and, but why does it matter for me? So let me back up a little bit and say this. The basic idea of religion, all religions, is that people need access to God. We are separated. Ever since the fall of man, we're sinful, we're separated from God, and we're subject to death. I mean, that was, the, that was the promise, right? If you eat of this tree you're forbidden to eat from, you will surely die. And we ate of it. And we're in a kind of death. We are separated. We're experiencing that. And so through Moses, God gave the, the law as a way to live correctly before God. But unfortunately, we're lawbreakers. The Israelites broke the law almost immediately as soon as they had it. He gave the sacrificial system, but obviously it was inadequate because a new and better covenant was needed. And so it just doesn't quite get us what we need. We need a perfect priest who can reconcile us to God and then always intercede for us. Our text today says he lives to make intercession for us, and he's of this never-ending order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is never going away. And the big obstacle here, the big obstacle, I think, in the church, in the world, although, is that although people are separated from God and under condemnation, I have to say that word, they don't realize that's their situation. People, people correctly suspect something is wrong. We feel that we don't have peace, we're missing that shalom, but we incorrectly assume that there is something in this world that if I could just get that thing, then I would have the peace. It takes a while before we realize it's actually peace with God that I need. If I could just get that promotion at work, if I could just have that relationship that I've always longed for, if I could make that big purchase or finish that project or get a full month's rest of vacation, then my peace would come back to me, etc. Fill in the blank. We can make a whole list of the things that people are pursuing to try and win their own peace, right? And I find that this is funny, not in a laughing way, but an odd way. It's funny how humans will try everything else we can possibly think of except God. And unless God jumps in and intervenes ahead of time, we will exhaust all our, our ideas, and then we'll say, well, maybe I'll try God. I don't know why that is, but it's just, it's just the way it seems to be. Maybe you're ready to stop striving this morning. Maybe you're ready to actually hear the truth. And in order to find the shalom that Christianity is offering, you have to actually feel the true weight of the problem. And let me just let that hang there for a second. Many people, most of us, could probably quote John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. Few people read far enough and know John 3, 18. You read two verses down further and it says this. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Condemned already. It's like we have one foot in hell in this life. And unless we turn to God, 
That's where we are. We're already condemned. Romans, Romans 1.18 says it very clearly. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Wrath is God's permanent and clear disposition against sin. No compromise. And the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of us. We're suppressing the truth. And do you see that word, word order matters? See that? That righteousness must come before, for, before peace. And once we embrace that truth, that apart from Christ, the wrath of God is, God is upon us and we stand condemned, then and only then are we ready to receive the good news. Then we'll be open to the solution that we need for the peace, the shalom. So think back to where I started. Examples, simple examples of guilty consciences, the telltale heart. Some sin in my life is causing me to not feel peace, not feel shalom. And I'm, I'm talking here about that inner lack of peace, that the feeling is higher, that it's, it's not just me and a sin against somebody else, but I have a lack of peace with God. I'm at odds with my creator. I feel that. I mean, read C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity on what he calls the natural law. I know there's this ought to, and it comes from outside of us. God has put a moral law on the universe, and I keep breaking it. I'm at odds with him. I have to feel that. This is the big problem in life. Now, to this big problem, if you can get that far, yes, I said wrath, condemnation, hell. Yes, if we can get that far, and you feel that disharmony, now there's really good news for you. I have something for you. In fact, Hebrews and the whole Bible is full of good news, gospel news. To this problem, Hebrews 7 speaks a mighty word of encouragement. Jesus is our great king and priest because he holds those offices forever. We never need another. And consequently, as verse 25 says, Hebrews 7:25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That word uttermost is striking. I was like, uttermost? What is that in Greek? So I did a little study on that. It's actually a compound word. It's, it's the word that means all and the word that means goal. For you Greek scholars, it's pan and telos. Telos is your existential reason for existing. It is your purpose, your long-term end for which life is the means. You're heading somewhere, all of us. And all, he's able to save all people, and he's also able to save all of you down to the very depth of your broken heart, whatever that is, the finest things, all of you is in scope. He is able to reach that, and he's able to save to the, per the perfect goal, the end. Save you to the uttermost is how the ESV translated it. So here's the big idea on this feast of Christ the King. Jesus is king of righteousness and peace, and he saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. To the uttermost. Now, how does he do this? Verse 26 says that he's the perfect priest. It says, quote, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Because he is perfect, he has no need to first offer sacrifices for himself, as the Old Testament priests had to do, because they were sinful men. They had to offer a sacrifice for their atonement, and then they could offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus never had to make a sacrifice for himself because he was perfect and sinless, and then he was able to make a once-for-all-time sacrifice on the cross for all sin. He was able to deal with that right there. You know, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the what? Propitiation. 
what does that word mean? J.I. Packer, who was on the translating committee for the ESV Bible, was adamant, and especially when the, the new um, prayer book came out, he was adamant that that word be in those comfortable words in our prayer book, propitiation. It doesn't just mean a perfect offering, which is sometimes how it's translated. It literally means appeasement for wrath. That, that Romans text, the wrath of God is against the unrighteousness and sin of mankind, and Jesus on the cross took the wrath of God on himself so that you and I don't have to receive it. So Romans 8 can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can feel that inner peace that comes when we turn to him. It requires, though, that we receive it. Hebrews says that those who draw near to God through him, he's able to save to the uttermost. So I want to, in closing here, I want to tell you how to draw near. I've asked you to take an inventory of your your peace quotient, I called it. How about your righteousness attempts? Not only the question, am I whole? Can I sincerely say in the words of the hymn, it is well with my soul? But also, how much am I still trying to save myself through what my favorite Tim Keller says are functional saviors? Things in this world that I'm looking to, to save me, to fix me, to earn me back my peace without having to repent and go to Jesus to get it. What are those functional saviors? We would call it works righteousness. I'm trying to work to earn the righteousness that I need before God. Renounce any of these ideas, which it blows my mind. The way we preach here for faith, faithfully, I think, to the gospel for years, I still hear people say, yeah, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a basically good person. <sighs> we don't recognize the holiness of God if we make that statement. Think about any, any kind of idea like that. Repent of that. No, no one is good of us, good enough. None of us can, can earn it on our own. We just can't do it. So how's my peace? Is it missing? Am I trying to earn righteousness in my own? Repent of that. There is a great release of tension in that inner discord when you honestly confess your real sins to God and you go to him and say, I am a broken, miserable sinner, Lord. I keep falling down on my face and I acknowledge it. Specifically, I, I fall down these ways. When we do that and we learn that we have been forgiven because of what Christ has done, peace that surpasses understanding is ours. It comes into our life in an incredible way. And so repent of any of those functional saviors and any of that works that we try to do. Pray for Christ to once again, or maybe for the first time in your life, be that kind of peace. Thank him for paying the debt for your sin. He went to that cross for you so that you might get his righteousness. That's the great exchange. And if you're not baptized, sign up for baptism and get baptized. Repent and believe and be baptized. And for all who are baptized, come to this table this morning thankful with gratitude for him saving you to the uttermost. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I pray that you would encourage us, your church, this morning. I thank you, Jesus, for being our great king our King Eternal and our great High Priest, I thank you for your love demonstrated on that cross. Would you help us to come to you and experience your peace today? I pray this in your holy name. Amen.